welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast, where we aim to be as good at the human side of healthcare as we are at the clinical side of healthcare. My name is Chris Desmond. I'm a physiotherapist who's fascinated by how we can better help the person with the problem. Join us as we learn how to connect better, how to show up better, and how to understand our patients and ourselves better. Welcome to the Art of Healthcare show, where we have interviews with experts to help us get better at helping the person with the problem. Today, I'm joined by Travis Christofferson. Uh, Travis is a full-time science writer, the author of three books, uh, Tripping Over the Truth, Curable, and Ketones, the Fourth Fuel. Uh, and he's the founder of a cancer charity, the Metabolic Cancer Therapy um, Travis, welcome. It's so cool to, to have a chat with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. My pleasure, mate. And first up, thank you for rescheduling the other week when I was uh, I was laid up with sinusitis. Um, I, don't think <laughs> no I, would have, I don't think I would have had a good conversation with you that day, mate. Um, Travis, usually what I ask people um, who are clinicians who come on the show is why are you interested in the art side of healthcare? But I, I guess maybe a question for you should be why are you interested in science and in communicating science to the, the population? You know, I, I found it's, my undergrad degree was biochemistry. I just fell in love with it. So I fell in love with the science first and, um, just sort of through, you know, convoluted life paths, I ended up on, not on the clinician side, but involved in the healthcare company. And, um, you know, it just being sort of immersed in medicine, like you obviously are and all the clinicians, you just can't help but observe and notice. And, and especially in America, these massive inefficiencies. And that that's what, that's what sort of uh, inspired Curable was just looking at our healthcare system, primarily in the US, you know, and you can start with a single chart. Just look at a chart of longevity versus healthcare expenditure, right? And the United States is just dead last and not even by a small amount. So we're just, which just speaks volumes from this 30,000 foot view that we are just terribly inefficient at delivering healthcare. And then the question I asked in Curable is why? What are we doing wrong? Where are these inefficiencies lie? And of course, you know, that's no small task and it, it butts up against um, psychology, human biases, incentive structures, all these incredibly complex issues. And to try to whittle it down into something comprehensible and, you know, 250 pages was difficult, but that, that was the task and that, that was my motivation and, and the inspiration. Yeah, and it's. Um, I'd recommend everyone pick up a copy of it. It was, as I was saying to you before we hit hit record it, uh, and actually in the email, I had a whole a lot of holy shit moments as uh, as I was reading through it. And obviously, I'm I'm working here in the New Zealand system, which is is different to the US system. But I think healthcare systems everywhere probably have a, a fair amount of inefficiencies in them. Um. One of the one of the things that I really found fascinating uh, with the way that you wrote the book is that you pull ideas from across the spectrum. It's not just health ideas. Um, you talk about the Moneyball approach in baseball. Um, you talk about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's approach to investing, um, and you talk about. Uh, 
Kahneman and Tversky. Is that how you pronounce his last name? That's um, right. Yeah, Kahneman yeah. Tversky. Yep. Um, yeah. Their their idea, uh, their research around cognitive bias as well. Um, why did first of all, why did you pull ideas from those quite sort of disparate fields to healthcare and bring them into that book? Yeah, yeah, so when you look, you sort of go march through the history of healthcare, right? Go all the way back almost 2,000 years ago to Hippocrates, the Greek, famous Greek physician. And, you know, he's usually known for his quote, um, first do no harm. Uh, but his, he also had a quote that a physician's intuition matters more than any external measurement. And that sort of ethos that puts all the burden of being a clinician on someone's instincts is really guided, guided healthcare until today, even. And you look through you look through history, and you know it was a mystical art. The practitioners were bleeding, toughening, uh, bloodletting, uh, just these crazy therapies that, that went on for so long. And what struck me as reading the history was the first well-organized, you know, golden placebo-controlled randomized trial wasn't done until after World War II. And you look at the other sciences, you know, chemistry, physics, were all embraced the experimental method, you know, coming up with a hypothesis, tight experimental techniques to come up with good conclusions. And medicine just didn't do that for so, so long. And that, that then, you, you know, the next question is, well, you know, humans are not purely rational creatures. They get a lot of stuff wrong for long periods of time. And that's really the work of Kahneman and Tversky. They, they were the first social scientists it was sort of largely believed that humans were mostly rational. And that was, you know, the, the kind of the baseline for social science. And these guys came along and, and just, you know, two Israeli psychologists did these fascinating series of experiments and just really illustrated how irrational we really are. And, um, you know, then to move to, to, okay, well, how do you deal with that? And you move, that, that's why I looked at the money ball thing with the Oakland A's and baseball, because baseball is a very, you know, it's not as complex as healthcare. It's it's a game. It's kind of a complex game, and forever they had talent scouts who would pick the players, and it was thought that you know you can't be, do better than these guys. They have honed their skills. It's it's human instinct. They can detect things that most people can't. And so Billy Bean, the manager of the Oakland A's, is like, no, these guys are subject to bias like anybody else. They're getting a lot wrong. They switched to a completely data driven approach to hiring to to um, recruiting players and fired all their talent scouts. Everyone said they were crazy. They're going to lose. And they started winning. And they had one of the lowest budgets in baseball, lower, about three times lower than the highest budget in the New York Yankees. Um, so that's just kind of, to me, was a, a beautiful example of how installing systems and not necessarily relying on uh, pure instinct from a human being is a, is a better path forward. And, and I'd like to you know preface that, that or step back and just say that human instinct can be remarkable. Doctors can pick up on things you know, in an almost magical way. But the idea moving forward is how do you marry those two? How do you um, confine decision-making through data, but let instincts still flourish? And I, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, but I'm gonna go off on one more tangent. You go, you look at chess, right? And it was I always thought this was sort of the, the pinnacle of human logic. It's a purely logical game. And then it was the incursion of computers came in the 80s and IBM came up with a computer Deep Blue that finally beat, I think it was Kasparov at the time, the, the number one grandmaster in chess. So now you have this incursion of data coming into a purely logical game. Now, 
what they've discovered is it's called advanced chess. So they have players pick an AI program and they play alongside the person. So it's each, each player with an AI program and the person. And the person can now detect when the AI can possibly be getting it wrong and go off instinct. And that's called that's called advanced chess. It is better than any computer, better than any single individual. So that that's a good sort of signpost where medicine could go is this sort of marriage between, you know, big data and 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 uh, human instinct. Mm, yeah, it's, uh, you painted a fascinating picture of that uh, in your book as well, and. It'll be it'll be interesting in the coming decades to see how see what happens in that space. Um, I want to I want to pull it back to to intuition and clinician intuition. And as you said, the the research shows that we're we're not the most rational of creatures. Um, but how does intuition show up um, negatively in a healthcare setting? So. One example, one example I think of that was in the book that kind of struck me was, and I would, I don't know if this is intuition or bias. I guess both they're one, one is sort of the same. But in the 80s, for example, there was uh, two treatments for lung cancer. There was surgery and radiation. And surgery offered a better chance for overall survival, but came with a 10% risk of death from the surgery itself. And so if a doctor said to a patient, Surgery comes with a better chance of survival, but you have a and, and you have a ninety percent chance of surviving the surgery. Then patients chose surgery eighty four percent of the time. If the if the doctor said to the patient, surgery has a better chance of survival, but it comes with a ten percent risk of death. So they framed it differently and put the death forward instead of the survival forward. Then only fifty percent of the patients chose surgery. So that's just an example of what should be a purely logical decision based on numbers there, even just tweaking it slightly, framing it, then the human human biases come into play and alter decision making. And that goes on all the time. And, you know, um, with clinicians, the other thing superimposed on that is incentive structures. Humans' incentives, it's just shocking how much they respond to incentives. In the U.S., we have the fee-for-service uh, payment structure, which incentivizes physicians to overtreat, and this is so clearly demonstrable. Um, about thirty percent of all the healthcare administered in the U.S. is overtreatment, and, and largely that's because of this, you know, this crazy incentive structure. And to give another example, um, when breast for surgery for breast cancer at the beginning of the twentieth century, there was a famous American physician surgeon, uh, Halstead, William Halstead. And he came up, and this was largely based on instinct, that his, it wasn't based on a good clinical trial, just he felt that based on what they knew of cancer, that if you, if you cut the surgical margins farther, you're likely to get more, more of, the, of the cancer and there'll be less recurrence. So using that logic, he came up with a radical mastectomy, which was, you, you know, became this horribly disfiguring surgery. It was, they, they would take out collarbones, sometimes ribs, all the lymph nodes in the neck um, in this, you know, misguided instinct driven idea that you just had to try to get further out from the primary tumor. And this went on for about a hundred years. Nobody questioned it. It was in it, it largely comes back to the way we think of, you know, the vernacular and what words mean and, and biases and instincts, a radical mastectomy was something like cancer. You need radical measures, right? So it was never questioned. And then finally in the eighties, a few physicians began 
suspecting this was probably largely unnecessary. You might get the same results from a, a simple mastectomy or even a lumpectomy. And they tried to get the clinical trial done, but the surgeons that they were trying to incorporate in the trial called them murderers. They were so indoctrinated that the radical mastectomy worked that they you know, almost didn't participate in the trial. They had a terrible time getting it off. But then in the end, when they did um, this huge multi-center trial, they showed that the radical mastectomy was no better than a simple mastectomy or lumpectomy. And again, you know, women were disfigured horribly for a hundred years based purely off instinct. So when it goes wrong, it can go badly wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you made the point earlier that when it goes right, it can almost be magical and and often it does go right. And when it does go right and you get this kind of strange feeling, you're like, something is not quite right here. I need to, I need to go and do this. And, and it, something pops up and you're like, okay, yeah, I don't know what that feeling was, but it was, it was a good one to follow. Um, but we probably have that also sometimes and, and it leads us astray. Thankfully, like in, in, in the physical therapy realm that I work in, not as it, the the results of me getting my intuition being wrong aren't as usually as devastating as a radical mastectomy, um, yeah. but I guess while we're while we're waiting for AI to assist us um, with advanced healthcare, what are what are some ways that we can we can put some maybe some checks and balances around our intuition um, just to make sure that we are, it is steering us in the right direction. That's a great question. Yeah. You, you look at the hospital systems that are doing it right. Um, and the one I talked about in the book was Intermountain Healthcare. Uh, just an absolutely wonderful chain of hospitals in Utah and Idaho. And the way they do it is, they have sort of a guy named Brent James there. He's a genius. And what he does, what he started doing was looking at the EMR, the electronic medical record system. And what he noticed right away was just massive variations in treatments for all kinds of procedures, right? And he goes, well, they can't all be right. One physician, there's got to be a best practice. One physician's got to be doing it better than the other when you have this much variation. And, you know, medicine is often practiced in this cloud of uncertainty. We often don't have the answers and we're clearly relying on intuition in many cases. So he just asked the question, how, how can we narrow this variation down and get a best practice that's best? And one example for that, he, that I show in the book is um, the timing of uh, pre-surgery antibiotics, right? And some doctors were giving it 48 hours before surgery. Some were giving it two hours before surgery. Some were giving it up to 48 hours after surgery. So what's the best time to do it? And they just ran a trial. They had the doctors that were doing it 48 hours to continue that and, and had four different groups of time when they administered and then measured infection rates, um, post-surgical infection rates. And it turns out there was a massive reduction in infection rates when they were administered at two hours before. So um, it doesn't even have to be AI. You know, you can just look at an, an EMR system, um, look where there's variation and then, and then narrow it down to a best practice. And uh, he did that from one thing to the next. And, and, you know, you tally all of what he did into a single metric and it shows if everybody adopted Intermountain system, it would lead to a 40% reduction in healthcare costs and better outcomes for everybody. Yeah. That's huge. 40%. 40%. That is, that is massive. And I mean, we're, we're talking huge numbers here and I mean, 
uh, especially in the US. The, the New Zealand numbers are, are high as well, but they, they pale in comparison. And if you can save 40% on that, imagine where you could deploy Oh my that, gosh! Well, you could deploy that forty percent into preventative healthcare measures. Yeah, you could save even out. more. Roads, bridges. Yeah, in the U.S., so one out of every five dollars have changed hands. It's almost twenty percent of GDP now is related to healthcare. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. You think what you could do with that? That's what. That's what's astonishing. And that money, tip, you know, largely is is wasted money. It's fraud. It's overtreatment. So, mm. and, and, and swinging for the fences at end of life, you know, giving people. Ter- chemotherapy when they have a month to live, things like that that are just totally unnecessary. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, we, we've been talking a lot about um, a lot about uh, systemizing healthcare, which is which is super important and makes it so much easier for us as clinicians. Um, but there there are a lot of clinicians out there who who already say, "Oh, I work on evidence based practice," or "I work on evidence informed practice." Um, maybe not ones that listen to this podcast, um, but for for people sitting there smugly saying, "I don't need to," I don't need to change my uh, the way that I practice. My intuition's right because I'm basing it on these things. What do you say to that person? Yeah, <laughs> well, th- there's that argument. You know, Brent James there was attacked by I can't remember the guy's name, but. Basically, it was a philosophical argument where if you're telling physicians how to practice medicine by constantly constraining them with data or, or clinical pathways and insurance companies are telling them, um, you, you're going to get worse outcomes because there's always, for every 100 patients, there's one that needs something different, right? And it's up to the instincts of that clinician to detect that and do that. Mm. And his counter argument is show me the data. If you can show me a reduction in mortality, or you know, a better disease outcome for you practicing that intuition-based medicine, um, show me it, prove it to me. And, and that's that's what you have to do. It's 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 so hard for a clinician operating to see outside the confines of their their practice. You know, they they have to to make that claim, you have to be able to f- track patients and and tr- get that data, and then you'll know for sure that you're doing things the right way. But physicians don't often get that opportunity. They, they have to work with the statisticians. And that, that's the model going forward that I think, you know, we have to adopt as it has to be this merger of the data, the statisticians, AI is coming fast. And then, you know, letting that instinctual flourish where it can and it's best, best used. Mm, yeah. I don't know if that's a great answer to that question. But no, I think it's. I think it's a good answer. I think it's a good answer, and yeah. I think it actually um, it probably leads into to another question: is that the bias around the data that we have, or the bias around the research that is created at the moment? Um, and a lot of research is driven by by money, um, by pharmaceutical companies, by people with vested interests in um, certain outcomes. Um, or sometimes in other professions where there isn't as much money, sometimes that research is driven by the preferences of an academic supervisor. And I know, I know this is an area of interest for you as well. Um, how do we, 
Well, firstly, can you can you elaborate a little bit more around the bias of research that is out there at the moment, um, and maybe kind of move into how can we how can we look to change that? Well, yeah, it was like you know what you and I were sort of talking about before you hit the record button, the art of healthcare, and the biggest the biggest way to move the needle on preventative healthcare and, and people's health in general is spending more time with them and the simple things, right? The simple things like diet, exercise, uh, social connections actually is, is a huge one. When you look at the, the epidemiological data on what matters the most, well, step one, step, take one step back, the data using identical twin studies, it shows that about 20% of your longevity is, is genetics and 80% is nurture. So the, the life, your lifestyle, the events that happen to you throughout your life. So within that 80%, what are the most important variables? And the top two are social connections. So very tight social connections, family, people you can really count on. And then the second one is called social integration. So that how engaged you are with the community, the number of people you talk to throughout the day. And then further down, even higher than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, diet, obesity, right? So, so these, these simple things that like our grandma, they've gone and play in the sunshine with your friends, mm. that gets lost. And the, the bias there that you were sort of, I think, talking about that research is there's a complexity bias to the newest shiny thing, right? So CAR T therapies for cancer, genetically engineering T cells to attack cancer. It's about $250,000 of treatment. That is entirely unsustainable, but it's, you know, technologically a, a marvel. Um, we're always look, we're looking for incredibly the, the next great thing technologically research-wise and forgetting these incredibly important simple things and there's a you know there's massive lists of them um two thousand two million people in the u.s get hospital acquired infections and it shows that healthcare staff is only 80 percent compliant with hand washing and about about ninety thousand of these people die every year and you would dramatically reduce that weight if they would just wash their hands it doesn't get any more simple than that but yeah, my, my, you know, I, my focus and what gets largely forgotten, these simple things, especially the biggest pernicious problem when you look at a biochemical standpoint, especially in the U.S., where the highest rate of obesity is insulin resistance. Over half of adults have it. It comes from just inactivity and bad diet. And metabolically, that affects everything in your body. All the 2,000 reactions that comprise your metabolism are driven less to completion. So less dopamine, less serotonin less antioxidant systems. And that's a, that's a very addressable problem, but we just don't, you know, there's more focus. There's, there's research to try to get pills for prediabetes and diabetes, but there's less focus on just lifestyle. And that's, you know, back to the art of healthcare. How do you institute that social change or get people to be compliant to that? Mm. Yeah. Do you have any answers to that one? <laughs> you you guys have to figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, I think technology is playing an interesting role mm. there. You know, I don't know how I feel about uh, continuous glucose monitors. You can get conscious feedback with those, what you eat and how it affects your metabolism. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky issue. Yeah, and I think I mean there's the the wearable technologies are are advancing at an interesting rate in terms of what they can what they can do and how that they how they can look and 
I was reading a I was reading a book actually um, by a guy called Anthony DeMello. Um, it was called Awareness. And Tim Ferriss mentioned it on his podcast, and I was like, I'll check this one out. But one of the things that he said is, um, knowledge is great, but to make a change, you don't just need knowledge; you need awareness. So you don't need just need to know the stuff; you need to taste and feel it. So even someone who is heading down a down a pathway towards poor health outcomes that we know that is wearing this this wearable technology and is getting this data often that's not enough to facilitate a change in that person's health behavior um and i don't know if that's just my intuition speaking um (laughs) but it's uh i think it's it's a really multifactorial problem that we're that we're looking to to try and address um and i think for from a if we're thinking about it from a systemic or a or a health perspective uh, country health perspective it's it's starting to get some more data around that and put cases forward towards uh towards governments to try and siphon some of that funding towards that area but there are are challenges in, in that as well yeah, yeah. And, and, and interestingly, it kind of circles back to that social aspect we we're talking about before. You know, when people are stressed and lonely, they they automatically fall back to that sort of pattern they were in before. Right. Mm-hmm. So so maybe it's takes social change too. And we need, you know, comes back to social media and how isolated people become. The rates of loneliness have gone up. Um incurable, you might remember towards towards the end, I looked at the super centenarians the people that live to 110 or longer. And it's interesting because they always get interviewed. And the first question is, well, what have you done to live so long? Right. And, and the answers are hilarious. They range from, I drink one Dr. Pepper a day. One guy's like, well, I snip, I snip whiskey and smoke 12 cigars a day. One lady's like, uh, just, she's like, I can't, I, I'm, I'm so mad. I've lived this long. I've hated my life. And there's no, you know, any single individual has no idea what they've done to make themselves live so long. But when you look and narrow it down, what you see is most of these people have, again, back, have had very active lives. They've never reported being lonely. Um, and I looked at one lady in particular, uh, uh, Jean Clement at France. So she lived to be 122, the longest lifespan ever recorded. And uh, so she started smoking in her 20s. And she only, but she would only smoke one cigarette after dinner. And she stopped smoking when she was 117. She drank some port wine, not a, a lot, not in excess. She ate some dessert. She loved dark chocolate. But she had this incredibly rich, fulfilling life. Lots of activities, not not much stress. When she turned 100, she rode her bike to everybody's house and thanked them for wishing her happy birthday in her village. Um, So the the take home from that for me was you don't need to be too stressed out about the perfect lifestyle, right? The perfect lifestyle is is sort of an art of being happy. And that involves social integration, friends, back to that, just being living a good life. And so I don't know how you design that, but it it could be, you know, just just talking about this and having people interact in groups and things like that is, is, you know, that's healthcare too. Mm, it is. It is, and I think, I mean, to to change, to effectively change health outcomes, I think there 
Like it needs to be a three-tiered approach. It needs to be happening in the clinic rooms or the clinical interactions. It needs to be happening at the systemic level of, of healthcare systems. And also it needs to be happening at the societal level about how we live our lives and how our cities are set up and, and things. Um, and yeah, changing one is great, but to change, um, if you just change one, then that can be dragged down by the others, I think. And yeah. I mean, one one thing, one idea that's just kind of popped into my head from the book is that, that maybe a, a starting point that is capping the downside. And I think this is where you talk about Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett in terms of they're really good at capping the downside. And it, this was a holy shit moment for me in the book. Whereas like maybe instead of chasing after all of these amazing techniques that I need to use to help this person get better. How can I, how can I cap the downside for this person and allow them to progress naturally? Yeah, that, that was Charlie Munger's inverse rule of problem solving. I think that's what, yeah, he, he, Mm. instead of trying to find an answer or solution to a problem, he, he would, what is making the problem worse, right? And I think you're absolutely right. That's a good way to to approach. And that's often the case, you know, when you look at uh, somebody with autoimmunity, what, 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 not how do you solve that incredibly complex problem through you know, transforming growth factor inhibitors, things like that. It's what's causing that problem. And, you know, we know all this stuff, autoimmunity, especially goes back to the gut. What are they eating that's causing inflammation? So it's, What's making this problem worse and taking that away instead of trying to fix, you know, this incredibly complex system? So I think as a general rule, yeah, as a clinician, that's probably a good sort of rule kind of to have when you're, especially when you're looking at zebra problems that are not obvious on a diagnostic you know, mm. test, things like that. Can you explain, expand on zebra problems for those oh, people man. who haven't read the book? <laughs> well, I've had, you know, um, I've had some some people that have reached out to me, especially recently, that have had just awful health problems that that were so hard to diagnose. And it was when you watch what they went through, they go through one specialist who would look at the problem through his his eyes, right? So uh, they would diagnose it as that. And then the next specialist who specialized in whatever they specialized in would diagnose it through their lens. And it's a classic, you know, every... Um, man with a hammer sees everything is with a nail. So, uh, and it was, you know, decades long, years and years of this before they got to a, a real, di- you know, what the actual diagnosis was. Um, and, you know, there's so many examples of that, like the, these hard things like multiple sclerosis that are present with all these different sort of vague common things. Um, people go through for years. I think the average time for an MS diagnosis is at least seven years. So yeah, that is a big problem in healthcare, but it's not, you know, none of this in my mind goes back to the clinician. The majority of the doctors are just fantastic human beings, well-motivated people. It's just these complex problems that humans don't really do too well at solving. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think you make a really important point there is that is we we look at a problem through our own set of biases. We look at a problem from our experiences and what we've been taught and how we live our lives. Um, 
Yeah. And and that's what we that's what we see there. Um, whereas actually, this person that's in front of us has had a multitude of different experiences to us. They've been brought up in a in a different way. They have different genetics to us. Um, so they're they're approaching the problem. Well, they're, they're coming with that problem from a whole different angle to us. And um, it's I, I think that that's that's one of the great things about an interdisciplinary team. Of healthcare practitioners attacking a problem is that everyone comes at it from a slightly different angle, um, yeah. and some of the best conversations and, and some of the best solutions to healthcare problems I've I've found have been when I've been in a room with an occupational therapist and a social worker and a, and a doctor and a nurse, and they'll say something that is common sense that I have just not been able to to fathom because that isn't the way that I that I look at the problem um, but also I think that when we're we don't always have the luxury of sitting down with a multitude of health, other health professionals who have all had a chance to assess this person in their own way and, and bring something to the table and, and I guess it's it's probably us looking to question our bias when we're when we're looking at the problem and and even sort of adopting the experimental method if we have the opportunity to it sometimes things are life are limb threatening and you just need to go and do them um right. but with a lot of other healthcare we we have that opportunity to experiment and to challenge our biases a little bit and, and to try and look at the problem from a different perspective yeah yeah I remember when um, my wife was pregnant, we went to the OBGYN and he was, I was asking him questions and he'd just say, I don't know. I can look that up. And he'd go back and look it up. And he was, he was, it just loved it because he was so comfortable saying, I don't know, but you know, he'd want to go back and research and find out. Um, yeah. I, I think of, you know, some of these, remarkable cases where intuition like that played such a huge role in the book and or the story incurable again back to these sort of simple treatments that are overlooked undervalued i look at them like an undervalued stock right it's a treatment that has potentially a lot of efficacy it's dirt cheap and kind of falls by the wayside primarily because there's no financial interest in it there's no way less of a way to make money and one of them was this guy in the 19, in 1950s um, a surgeon in, in Denver, and you know, patients would often get dysentery after surgical antibiotics, and so he he had this. This is well before the microbiome was appreciated, and um, he had the suspicion. Well, maybe there's an indigenous gut bacteria that antibiotics are wiping it out, and um, then bad pathogenic bacteria takes over and causes this dysentery. So his idea was to restore the balance of nature. And by that was a fecal transplant, what he meant. So literally going and finding a healthy person's feces. And he found it from a maternity ward next door and um, just given an enema with it, right? Restoring the balance of nature. And all he did it on four patients. You know, you could get by with anything back then. You didn't have to take it by an IRB <laughs> yeah. committee. <laughs> so he did that and he cured all these four patients of dysentery. That was published, right? So it was known in the 50s that fecal transplants worked. And, and you fast forward decade after decade after decade, and hospital-acquired infections are getting worse and worse and worse to the tune of, um, I think, about 30,000 deaths in the U.S. are 
uh, in um, 15,000 are directly attributable to C. diff and another 15 are indirectly attributable to it. You have about a coin flips chance of getting C. diff if you're in the hospital for four weeks. So it's this massive problem and they've always treated it with the next great latest, greatest generation of antibiotics, mm. which has a cure rate, the first line antibiotics about 75%. But it had been known forever about these fecal transplants, vets use them, you know, and people started doing it on their own. They looked it up and there was a deep, huge uh, sort of downloadable thing on Google, how to do it at home. And about 10,000 people were doing it at home. They wanted to do it at a doctor's office, but the medical community was again, surrounded, whatever the complexity bias, not wanting to make, make shit in a blender and be that guy <laughs> in the hospital. Right. So what, for whatever reasons that just went on and on until they did a clinical trial and found out that it was a uh, 90, 94% effective in the 6% that didn't make it. You just did it again and it worked. Whereas only the antibiotics, 75% of the time it worked. And then if it didn't work the first line, your chances of it working again were less and less until you this horrible end stage of C. diff, right? And they just keep trying with antibiotics. And they, they took the antibiotic arm out of this trial and gave them a fecal transplant because it was working so well. Then you go to the NIH and they're like, well, we don't have no idea how to regulate this. So they, they talked and talked about how to regulate it. They were worried about these nebulous, like future problems, like if, perhaps if the donor came from a, a heavy person that the patient, the receiver would gain weight, right? The person dying from C. diff doesn't give a shit. They're dying and this is a cure. So they were gonna regulate it through, through a, an IND, an investigational new drug, which would effectively you know, just stop it because it's such, such a burden of paperwork. and. And there was one patient there that was in the back, Catherine Duff, who saved her life by doing an at-home fecal transplant. And she spoke and, you know, was just angry and passionate about it, told her story. And that kind of just sort of realigned the conversation back to what this risk-reward profile and how important this was. And they decided to, to allow it to go on, but under you didn't have to do an investigation on your drug, but it wasn't approved, but you could still do it. And now it's, you know, it's pretty much common practice in most hospitals to do fecal transplants. There's super donors, um, people with perfect poop that donate and sort of, <laughs> you can get it from the poop bank. So that that's, but that, you know, the, the point of that, I guess, is that um, the, these incredibly effective, simple things are out there, but for these variety of biases just get pushed aside. And you can just look down the line of these things that are so obvious and simple, but just doesn't seem to be the focus in healthcare. Mm. And, and I think it's just, it's about thinking differently and and looking at different ideas. And I think that's like, that. that's probably the, the most simple way that we're going to be able to change change healthcare and change the healthcare system to be more effective and more efficient is by thinking differently. And you may not, may or may not have an answer to this, but how do we how do we get health practitioners and the people that um, the people that run healthcare to start thinking differently? How do we facilitate Ooh. that? You know, I, I think one thing, Chris. Um, that's interesting to me is uh, global capulation. Have you heard of that? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, it's probably it's probably more of a U.S. phenomenon because you guys. It's so what it is. Instead of having primary practitioners do fee for service, what they'll do is the the care the primary care clinic will 
to say to the insurance company, give us a lump sum of money per patient. And then if this patient goes off and gets a, a catastrophic claim, that's on us. It comes out of that pot of money. So now the incentive is not to overtreat fee-for-service. The incentive is to keep your patient population as healthy as possible. Mm. And so what you find in global calculation is these clinics will hire like healthcare um, uh, at people to go to the, the patient's home, see if they're, you know, have um, medication conflicts, if they are taking medication, what's in the refrigerator, are they lonely, sit and chat with them, um, what's their activity routine, what are they eating? So it's a more just immersive form of healthcare, what healthcare really is. Mm-hmm. So that you just using that simple incentive approach is one way to realign, I think, the way that particularly primary care physicians think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. And I, I, like I've seen, we obviously don't have that here, but I've seen firsthand the, um, the benefit of health coaches within um, medical practices as well. And, and the, the effect that they can have on, on populations as well. Um, Travis, just mindful of the time, mate. Um, if people are interested in, in learning more about you or in reading your work or, or connecting with you, what, how do they go about doing that? I, you know, I've been pretty bad about that. The, the foundation has got a website. So yep. you kind of see the, the projects that we have going on. Um, the Twitter actually, you know, I know Twitter has got its fair share of crap, but it's, to me, it's interesting. I just kind of discovered it recently. You can, you know, find the smartest people in the room, follow them. And get their daily thoughts and get, you know, they send out research articles, things like that. So it's been it's been kind of fun for me lately. So I, you know, I'm happy to anyone direct message on Twitter and chat. Cool. What's your uh, what's your Twitter handle? Oh man, uh, I think it's I'd actually have to look it up, but if That's I think right. you search my name, you'll find I'll, it. <laughs> I'll put a, I'll put a link in there as well. And um uh, you can get all your books on on Amazon or wherever else you buy books as well, can't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah. Cool. Travis, what's um, for, for the clinicians, what's one thing that we should do tomorrow in our practice based off our conversation? You know, that's a very hard question, Chris. I, I don't want to have anybody think that I, you know, have any sort of advantage over, I've written a book and studied the healthcare system, but I'm not involved like you guys are. And I think a well-meaning, smart person like you, obviously, is, is going to get so good at being a clinician over time. And I, I would never have that expertise. But to me, uh, just go back to that, that simple idea that we know that um, spending time with people is just critical for, for health. So, you know, typically in America, primary care, you get such an incredibly limited time. And I don't know, you, you just, this is the way the system is, but if you have your own practice, you can dictate how much time you spend. But that to me seems the most obvious thing is, and you learn about people within that time. What, what are their issues? Um, and again, back to the, you know, to me, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, the sci- science of social genomics, that people report they're lonely, that, that we know epidemiologically that they're all-cause mortality, they, they're heading off a cliff, Right. How do you fix that? Talking to them is, is one step. But when, when you look at how that does that, it penetrates all the way to the core DNA. They start to express pro-inflammatory genes and less targeted um, immune system genes. So they're constantly in this inflamed state, heart disease accelerated, Alzheimer's risk. 
but yeah, it, to me, it just goes back to that the simplicity. And the other one is insulin resistance and what a pernicious effect that has on, on people. And I just think that, you know, back to that simplicity, if you can somehow get people to the majority of people on this planet, especially in Western um, societies are overfed. It's that, you know, that simple. We just eat too much. And we don't, we don't walk and move enough. And that just leads to this catastrophic metabolic outcome for people. And it's, it's so widespread. And, and those two things, right, would, would go so far for uh, reductions in chronic disease, lifespan, happiness, all those things. Mm-hmm. Sounds incredibly simple and, and probably hard to do, but <laughs> it's right there in front of us. You know, those are the obvious variables. Yeah. Simple, simple isn't always easy, but yeah, I, I guess it's, um, yeah, don't, don't get too complex tomorrow. Just go out and keep it nice <laughs> and simple. Travis, mate, thank you so much for joining me and, and having this conversation. It's been awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. That is a wrap. Thanks everyone for tuning into the show. If you've enjoyed it, then make sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the weekly episodes. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is to share this out with a mate that you reckon might enjoy it. And if you want to enhance your skills in this area even more, then watch out for the Art of Healthcare community coming in August 2021. It's a truly interdisciplinary space for us to upskill our art. If you want a sneak peek, for more info, head over to artofhealthcare.mn.co. That's artofhealthcare.mn.co. And a couple of quick thank yous. First of all, thank you to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music. And thank you to you guys for joining me as we look to improve our art.